Romans chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, we ended last week's study looking at the fact that Paul was wanting to reap a harvest among them. And we only dealt briefly, well, we dealt a long time on one aspect and briefly on another. So I want to just kind of quickly catch us up with where we were last week and the two aspects of the harvest he wanted to reap. We saw that uh, part of his desire to reap a harvest was to have them help him financially on his way to Spain. Go with me real quick to Romans chapter 15 again, verses 22 and following, and just kind of catch you up with a reminder of where we ended up last week. Look at Romans 15, starting in verse 22. Paul says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. By the way, we'll answer that tonight, the reason he had been so hindered. This is the reason why I have often been hindered Uh, from coming to you, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So last week we saw that part of the harvest he wanted to reap among them was a financial help as he made his way on to Spain. But another aspect that kind of has been touched on here by Paul in Romans 1 is a harvest of souls. See, Paul was an evangelist and he had a heart to share the gospel. Go back to Romans 1 real quick and look again at verses 13 and following. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. We'll deal with in a second what that was. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And then he said, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then he goes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul's desire was also that there'd be a harvest of souls. Go with me to Romans 15. Now look at the verses just prior to verses 22 through 29. We'll go to verses 14 through 21. Paul, as always, had a desire to preach the gospel where the gospel was fresh and a desire to see a harvest of souls coming to Christ. Romans chapter 15, look at verse 14 and following. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all the knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder 
because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my works for God, or work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of the signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul says, look, my calling... The passion on my heart is to preach the gospel where it hasn't really been preached fully yet. Now, in Rome, as he's already been saying, this church had already been started by other people. He'd heard about them. They're a thriving church. They're doing well. And he definitely wanted to go there and preach the gospel there because there were lots of Gentiles in Rome. And that's his calling as well. As much as he wanted to preach to the Jews, God said, I've got you to go to the Gentiles. But Paul said, because my calling is to go to places where they really haven't heard the gospel yet, that's what I want to do. I've been hindered from heading to your church because you guys are doing really well. And you're really not my main target. Do you understand what I'm saying? But I still at the same time want to go because I have a desire to go preach the gospel in Spain. And I hope you guys will help me financially along the way. And maybe we'll even see some Gentiles in the area of Rome come to faith. Let me just say this to you. It will help you in whatever your ministry is and whatever gifts you have to know the specifics of what God's put on your heart. For example, I have been called by God to take Christians who already know the word and already know the Lord deeper, have them understand more and have them grow in their walk with the Lord. And that's my calling. If you ask me to go preach and teach to people that have never heard, that's hard for me, mainly because, as you already know, the way that I have been gifted to teach is to say, look what it says here, look what it says there, look what it says here and how it all comes together. But people that don't know the word and are at baby level, I'd kill them. But there are preachers and teachers who are actually really good at taking people who don't know the Lord and are at the beginning stage, 101 levels, if you are, if you will, and they help them understand the word and it will help you. I've asked people for years, what is it you want to do and what you feel called to do? What, how do you think God's gifted you? And as I talk to preachers and teachers over the years, they'll say, I just want to preach the word of God. I just want to teach the word of God. And I say, do you want to teach children? Do you want to teach young people? Do you want to teach boys? Do you want to teach girls? Do you want to teach people that know the word? Want people that don't know the word? You see, understand? Don't just say, I just want to go share the word of God. God's going to have given you specific aspects of how he's wired you to go do it. That's why in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 and following, the scripture says, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each of you with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've received. If your gift is prophesying, use it in proportion to your faith. In other words... If God's called you to preach, that's great. But has he called you to preach to thousands? Or has he called you to preach to 50 or 10? Or has he called you to teach young people? My wife is a really, really good Bible teacher. But she loves teaching junior high girls. If she had her druthers, she'd spend all her time teaching junior high girls. i got to be honest with you. That's probably the last group I'd want to teach. <laughs> probably the last group would want me to teach them. Find out what it is that God's not only called you to do, but let him show you some of the specifics and enjoy just go doing that. Now, also, 
as we saw last week, this gospel is for everyone. Remember that? The gospel of salvation has always been for everyone. But where we left off last week was a question, if the gospel's always been for everyone, why does Paul say here, the gospel is first to the Jews and also to the Greeks? If it's always been for everyone, how can it be first to the Jews? Well, we're going to deal with that, but I want to lay a little more foundation for you and have you see a couple of things to see that the gospel has always been for everyone. Put a bookmark here in Romans 1 and go back with me to Luke chapter 4. Let me show you something that Jesus did and said when he was in his hometown of Nazareth, reading and teaching in the synagogue. In Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 22. He's just finished reading a section from the prophet Isaiah. And what we know is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He stopped in the middle of verse 2, and he said, This has been fulfilled in your hearing. And this is what happens next. Verse 22 of Luke 4. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Well, we have heard you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So he goes, I know what y'all are going to think now that I've just said this scripture, this prophecy about the coming Messiah has been fulfilled in your hearing. I know what you're going to say. I know your thoughts. And you're all looking at me going, okay, you're claiming to be the Messiah. Prove it. We've heard about the miracles you did in Capernaum. Do them here in your hometown. Do a little magic trick for us. And he goes, let me just go a little further. You Jews think that the kingdom is only for you. Let me remind you, when God was working through Elijah the prophet, and God used Elijah to bring a judgment and no rain for three years and six months in Israel, there are lots of widows in Israel, but God sent Elijah to a Gentile, and he blessed that Gentile during those three years and six months. Oh, and when God used Elisha to heal Naaman of his leprosy, there were lots of people in Israel who had uh, leprosy, but God healed a Syrian, someone who wasn't a Jew. And boy, they got so mad that he would have the nerve to say that salvation wasn't just for the Jews, but it was for everybody else too. They tried to kill him. But the Bible says miraculously he's able to just kind of walk back through that crowd. I always picture Jesus thinking to himself, I'm going to die on a hill someday, but not this hill and not today. But again, the gospel has always been for everyone. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody know when the gospel was first preached in the Bible? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's a seminary word. It's the proto-evangelium. The first preaching of the gospel was when God, in the garden, after Satan causes Adam and Eve to fall, he says to Satan, a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman is going to crush your head. 
And therefore the gospel was begun to be revealed. Oh, as you already know, the scripture says Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, it was God's plan to, before he even made the first bush. This has all been in God's plan. But the, pre, the gospel was preached, and over time, more and more began to be revealed. But when God preached the gospel, were there any Jews? No, the nation of Israel doesn't even come around until many hundreds of years later at the time of Abraham. Okay, so we would agree that the gospel has always been for everyone, right? Then why does he say here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek? First thing I want to point out is this. Does he say to the Jew first and second to the Greek? No, he doesn't. What's the word he uses? Also. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, it's always been to both, yet there is an aspect of this gospel that Israel kind of has some advantages. And that's what we're going to look at. The first thing I want you to see of the advantages that Israel had is that they had privileges. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> He's talking about how Jew and Gentile are both alike under sin. And look at what God says through Paul in Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. When God began to reveal more and more and more of the gospel, what nation did he reveal most of the gospel to first? The Jews. Oh, it's been revealed all through creation. We'll get to that in the next couple of weeks as we get into the rest of Romans chapter 1. And everyone's without excuse. As you're going to see when we get to Romans 2, he puts his, his, his law on our hearts. Whether we have heard his written law or not, he's put it on our hearts. He's been revealing himself and everybody has an opportunity to be saved all throughout his history. But he begins to reveal more of the gospel to the Jews. Go to Romans chapter 9. Look at verses 1 through 5. In Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They not only have had privileges, they also had a lot more revealed. The law, the promises, the covenants, all these things that point to Christ. So they had advantage. On top of that, Jesus' ministry, when Jesus came to the earth, remember Jesus has always existed, he's God, but when he came to the earth, his ministry was who first? To the Jews. Go to Matthew chapter 15. <clears throat> We're going to look at verse 24. Let me set the stage as you're turning there. It's a story where Jesus uh, is out doing ministry and this Gentile woman comes to him and says, help, heal my daughter. She has a demon and the Bible says Jesus ignores her. And the disciples come and say, she's driving us nuts. Would you do something? And in Jesus, in verse 24 of Matthew 15, says this. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Isn't that interesting? When Jesus came to the earth, he came first to the Jews. 
Oh, was he available to everyone? Without question, because if you keep reading in this story, her faith is such that he says, your request is granted. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Back up a couple of uh, chapters in Matthew and look at verses 5 and 6. When Jesus sent out his disciples or his apostles two by two and he gave them authority over unclean spirits and he sent them out to preach. Listen to what he says in verses 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. This is the people that were half Jewish, half other nations. They didn't married, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So when he sent them out two by two, he said, don't go to any Gentile house. Don't go to the Samaritans either. Just go to the lost sheep of Israel. So they were two sent, sent to them first. By the way, let me ask you a question. Does anybody know who the first person was that Jesus himself revealed who he was and told someone, I am the Messiah? It's a woman at the well in John 4. And what was she? A Samaritan. Stick with me here. I hope this isn't too deep for you. I hope you're able, to, by the grace of God, to grasp this because it'll be helpful for you later on in our study. He was obedient to the Father and he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Yet, even though he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, if the Father said, oh, I'm doing something in this Gentile's life, he was free to do something. If the Father said, I'm doing something in this Samaritan's life, he was free to do something. He, Jesus knew what it meant to obey the Father, yet listen to the Father and the Spirit's leading in each and every situation. We have a tendency to gravitate toward the rules and follow the rules and the policies, and we get out of the walking in the Spirit and letting God lead us. Now, this takes maturity. Because there's lots of people that say, well, I'm just doing whatever God tells me to do. And they're really not. They're following their flesh. Yet at the same time, you can jump in the other ditch and just say, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And never help the Gentile woman like Jesus did. Or never go say to the woman at the well, the one who speaks to you am he. So Jesus was first sent to the Jews. Yet as he was first sent to the Jews, if the father showed that he was doing something, Jesus would do ministry to the Gentiles. Um, Paul was an ambassador to the Gentiles, correct? God made that very clear. Look, I want you to go preach to the Gentiles. Does that mean he never preached to another Jew? Of course. Of course not. He would still go. And a lot of times he reached a lot of Gentiles in synagogues. Because there were Jews, the Gentiles that were going to the synagogues because they're seeking God. Folks, let me say this to you. And again, hopefully later in our study, this will even make more sense. We need to know what God has said. We need to know what his word says. But we also know how to need to know how to listen to him as we go with him and not just live by our policies. Sometimes the spirit of God's going to have you do something that seems contradictory. But in that instance, God says, it's OK. Trust me on this one. Do it. Let me give you an example. I could give you a bunch, but let me just give you one. Is, is it wrong to to sin, is it a lie? To, to, uh, sorry, is it a sin to lie? Do you remember when uh, the nation surrounded the prophet and his servant? And this, they were, it looked like they were surrounded, and the prophet prayed, Hey, Lord, open my servant's eyes, and he could see all the chariots of fire around. And God struck him blind. And he went out and he says, Who are you looking for? And they said, His name. And what does he do? Oh, he's not here. Let me take you to where he is. He lied. No, it wasn't off the cliff. He actually led them to another town, and then they realized by then, opened their eyes, they were in trouble. But again, in that instance, the Spirit said, just follow me. 
this is a hard thing for a lot of us because we're afraid of people running with it. I'm going to talk about this more later on in our study, but let me just say this to you. I've come to realize over the years that if we really believe that God is able to take his children and grow them and lead them and direct them, are there going to be times that we make a mistake? Yes. Are there going to be times that we actually act in the flesh and blame God? Yes. But God's big enough to handle that. He'd much rather us try to walk with him on a daily basis than say, all right, Lord, I'm going to follow your rules and have no relationship. Do you understand? This takes maturity, and I pray that God will help you get there. Now, there's another aspect as well that makes it first to the Jews, as long as also, as well as also to the Greek. First, they had privileges. Jesus' ministry was first to Israel, and salvation came through the nation of Israel. Go to John chapter 4. We'll go to that woman, in the well, woman at the well story, and look at verses 19 through 26. Now remember, Samaritans were people that had uh, Jewish heritage. When the Jews went into captivity in Babylon, they intermarried with the Babylonians, and then when they were set free from their captivity, they came back to Israel. But because they had intermarried with the Babylonians, the devout, strict Jews wouldn't let them live in, with them, and so they made them live in this area of Samaria. In John chapter 4, verse 19, the woman at the well says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Look, begin at verse 22. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from who? From the Jews. If you remember from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, in our study of Matthew, it said the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and it showed how he was a descendant of Abraham and of David. The Messiah came from the nation of Israel, from the Jews. So has it always been? The gospel has always been for everyone? Yes, it's always been for everyone. Yet the Jews had a lot more advantage, did they not? A lot more. Now we need to, we need to go there for a second because we're going to talk about this tonight. We're going we're gonna to dive into some more things that what Paul says in Romans 1 that we really need to grasp. But let me just say this to you. The gospel is very clear that God's salvation has always been for everyone. Jesus died on the cross for everyone. And we're going to probably cover some verses that deal with that tonight. Yet, if we are faithful to the scriptures, there are some people who receive more light, more understanding than others when it comes to salvation. Can we not agree that that's what the Bible clearly teaches? Jesus himself said, if the miracles that had been done in Capernaum were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And, and we would all in our flesh say, well, and Jesus, why didn't you do those miracles there too? And the honest answer is, because I chose not to. Everybody's had enough opportunity to be saved. God's revealed himself in many ways. We'll get to that further in our study of Romans. 
But we have to be faithful. Some people are drawn more than others, have more light than others. And that's God's plan, and he has the right to do it however he wants. Again, avoid jumping into that wrong ditch where all of a sudden you say, Jesus only died for the people that are going to be saved. And if he draws you, you can't say no. And some people never have an opportunity. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Everyone will be held accountable. Everyone has an opportunity. And the Bible says that those who have had more revealed to them will be judged more strictly on the day when they're judged about whether or not they said yes or no to Jesus than the ones who had less. It'll be easier on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum. But God's just. But not everybody gets the same amount. The Jews had a tremendous advantage. Go to Romans chapter 11. I want you to see that not only did the gospel start there or at least begin to be revealed more and more to the nation of Israel, the Bible says in the end it's going to be tied to Israel. Go to Romans 11, verses 25 through 27. In Romans 11, verse 25, Paul says, I don't, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, the one that's left, the amount of the Jews that are left after the tribulation, will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So did the Jews get more light than all the other Gentile nations? Yes. They had privileges. They had Jesus sent to them first. The, the salvation came through the nation of Israel. The Messiah came through the nation of Israel. But what happened to the nation of Israel when they rejected the Messiah? They've experienced the hardening. Is it possible for Jews to be saved? Yes. But it's a lot harder now for Jews to come to faith than it is Gentiles because God's giving more light now to the Gentile nations. And we're a part of that wonderful privilege, the church age. But there's going to come a time where our advantage is going to go away and he's going to take us and he's going to finish with Israel. God gets to do things however he wants. Amen. We must, must respond to when he's opened our eyes because you don't know when he'll say, I've given you all the light I'm going to give you. Don't assume you're going to have plenty. Don't assume it's all equal. It's not. But don't ever think that he's unfair. You have enough to believe. And I think the Bible teaches very clearly that, one, there's no such thing as an atheist. Oh, there's lots of people who say, I don't believe there's a God. I believe the Bible teaches without question everyone knows there are God. There is a God, and they'll, they'll get, we'll get to that later in our study. And on top of that, I believe the Bible teaches that everyone has an opportunity to respond. They've had enough to believe, and you'll be held accountable accordingly. So God's good news of salvation is for everyone but it's only received by what? By faith. Go back to Romans 1. Look again at what he says in verses 16 and 17. We'll spend the rest of our time tonight really diving into this. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith. We'll come back to that in just a second. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Don't miss this. The power of salvation is in what? No. The power of for salvation is what? Is in what? In the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The power for salvation is the gospel. It's not in how good you say it. It's not in how good you know it. It's in the gospel. And we're to just preach the gospel. We're to just share with people. The Bible says that there was a man who was also God, who lived without sin, and he came to this earth. God himself came to this earth, was born of a virgin, lived a human life without sin. God punished him instead of us. He rose from the dead by his own power. And all these many things, the covenants, the laws, the promises, the sacrificial system, creation has been pointing to him all along. And if you would believe that the only way you can be made right is by faith in God's provision for your sin through this man, you'll be saved. And that's the gospel. The power for salvation is in this. Have you ever noticed that when Paul... By the way, he ends up in Rome. If you keep reading in the book of Acts, he gets to Rome and there's a bunch of Jews that all want to come hear him. We've, we've heard about this way. We haven't heard a lot about you, Paul, but we know who you are. You're a famous Jew and we've never heard a whole lot bad about you, but we've heard about this thing called the way, Christianity. We'd like you to talk to us about it. And the Bible says that Paul spent the whole day sharing with them from the scriptures. About half the room came to faith. The other half were angry and walked out. He said the same words to all the people. Some said, we believe. Others said, he's nuts. Did Paul do it wrong? No. The power's in the gospel. The power's in the gospel. We're reading Ephesians 2 today, and it said the same thing, that when it's the faith, you have to know that the faith is in believing in the gospel. Exactly. Faith is believing in the gospel. All right, so let's, let's actually, we're going to head there. Go to Romans 1 real quick, though, and look again now what it says. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Some of you might have a study Bible with a little note there that sends you down to the bottom of your page. And it might also say what? From faith what? To faith, right? You see it? I like faith to faith better. I think that's a little easier for us to grasp. In other words, your salvation starts by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know how your salvation is finished? By faith. Don't miss this. Whenever, and you can double check me on this. You do a study of the Bible of the word salvation. And you will find that salvation has three parts. So when the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking about all three parts. In other words, the first part of salvation is what we call justification. At the moment we trust Jesus as our Savior and Jesus seals us with his spirit, we are born again, sealed by the Spirit of God, eternally secure, and we are justified, just as if I'd never sinned, some people say. You are declared righteous by God because of Jesus. You're saved. But the Bible also says that we're being saved. And the Bible, the Bible calls that sanctification, the process of being saved. Even though we're saved, we're still being saved. And the Bible also says that when Jesus comes, he's bringing salvation with him. Wait a minute. Why is he bringing salvation with him when I already got it? Let me ask you a question. Are you saved 
are you being saved or will you be saved? Yes. yes. That's what salvation is. And it's begun in faith and it is finished in faith. Oh, there are those who say that they have faith. In the parable of the soil, seed fell on the rocky soil or the thorny soil and sprung up and fooled a lot of people. But over time, it became evident that what they had said they had wasn't real. Trouble came, mama died, or I lost my job, or I got to do things the way I wanted, and they walk away. Or the cares of this world, deceitfulness of wealth, and not wanting to live for this life, they walk away. They never had it. But those of us who have been saved, we're not only saved by faith, the only way you'll grow in sanctification is by stopping to trying to help God save you more and believe that you're saved and trust that he will finish what he started. And all the way to, to, to glory, it's by faith. That's what it means here. It's the power of God for salvation from faith to faith. And the righteous shall live by faith. So I want you to see this from the scriptures. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. The exact passage you were just talking about. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're going to see this later on when we get further in our study of Romans. But the Bible in the book of Romans says very clearly, we love to quote Romans 3.10, where it says there's no one righteous, not even one. But does anybody know what verse 11 says? Verse 11 says there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. If you were left to your own, you would never seek God. But Jesus taught us in John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45, that no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws them first. It's almost like God's playing a game of hide-and-seek with the world. He comes and he says, I'm here, but now you got to come find me. And if you will find me if you seek for me with your whole heart. The Bible says in Romans, sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith it's impossible to please God, for we must believe that first that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Wait a minute, nobody seeks him, right? But once he begins this process, he quickens us. He, he gives us the truth through many different ways, which we'll get into later in our study of Romans in the next few weeks. But once he quickens us, it doesn't mean you're saved. That's why it's possible for people in the book of Hebrews chapter 6 to have tasted of the heavenly gift, to have experienced the grace of the Holy Spirit. Is there a big difference between you tasting something and swallowing? There's a big difference. And the Bible teaches that everyone in some way, shape, or form has God opened their eyes to this truth. But then we have to decide what we're going to do with it. Are we going to continue to say God's doing something and I want to know him? And is this truth? Is this what this, these preachers saying about Jesus true? Is, is what I'm hearing on this website true? Or uh, uh, what's going? what are you doing? And when we do that, God gives us more revelation, more light. And there comes a point where we come to faith. Oh, and by the way, when you come to faith, is that something you did? Or does God give it to you? God gives it to you. Folks, we got to leave it alone. Too many people are fighting over how God saves, and the honest answer is we don't know. But we know this much. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and the Bible says that the gospel is for everyone. The Bible also says that once you do respond, God did it. 
But too many people want to jump in one ditch or the other and fight with each other. Let me say this to you as well. I want to show hands. How many of you believe in one God, but he's always manifested himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? How do you believe in that? Show hands. All right, now put your hands down. Of those of you who raised your hand, how many of you are able to come stand up here tonight? I'll let you use my microphone and explain to me how that is. Oh, and by the way, you can't say cherry pie. It's a horrible illustration. And you can't say the sun because it's not a really good illustration because there's holes in that. And you can't say, well, it's like water and ice and steam. No, it's not. Actually, I could blow that up as well. We can't explain it, can we? But we don't fight over it because the Bible says that there's one God, has always been one God, yet he's always manifested himself in three persons, and we leave it alone. And I'm going to say this to you as well. The gospel's for everyone. Jesus died for everyone. If you're saved, God did it. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. To him be the glory. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 21 through 26. Again, I want you to see that this gospel is by faith. Starts in faith, ends in faith. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets have bared witness to it. They've been talking about it all along. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I'm going to break this down a lot more when we get to chapter three. But for now, just understand this. The righteousness of God has been, the law and the prophets have been pointing to it all along. The gospel's always been the same from all, for all time. God's provision for your sin is what you need to be putting your faith in, God making you righteous by faith. It's been that way all along. But now we know on this side of the cross that it's Jesus. But now go to Colossians chapter 2 because we got a problem. And we're going to start getting into this problem, this, this aspect of our Christian life that has kept us a little bit from really understanding the fullness of the fact that it starts in faith and ends in faith. Because many of us were raised that you couldn't do anything to be saved. You have to just say, Jesus, give it to me. Correct? But then after we were saved, you were taught, now, in order to be a good Christian, you have to do these things. You want proof? Show of hands again. How many of you were raised and taught that Sunday was the Sabbath, and you're not to eat out, you're not to work, and you're not to play golf or whatever on Sunday? How many of you were raised with that? Most of us. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Let's, let's read the whole chapter slowly, and look at what it says here. Paul says, For I want you to know... How great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. By the way, last night I tried to make a little joke here about how I hurt for people that have not seen my face, but they totally missed it. But their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, before I go any further... Let's read this again real slowly, and all of us have to admit, there's something more here that most of us don't get. 
Paul says, that verse, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Anybody understand all that? Do you all understand the fullness of who you are in Christ and the fullness of all the treasures that are ours in Christ? No, we've got, we've got a lifetime and even eternity to enjoy realizing what all that is. But keep reading. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did, by the way, how did you receive him? By faith. How are we to walk in him every day? By faith. Lord, you began this good work. You're going to finish it. You don't need my help. But I want to trust you. I want to learn how to listen to you. And I want you to keep doing what you've already begun. And it's going to be fully revealed one day. But I want, to, want you to keep doing it. And I'm going to trust you. But I want to walk with you here. Because just as much as I trusted you, were sa- you would save me, I had to say, Lord, please do it. In the same way, on a daily basis, you have to yield yourself to the Spirit for Him to do what He wants to do in the sanctification process. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. By the way, some of you have been taught that even though you're saved, you have to have another filling. You ever heard preachers talk about that? How you need a second filling, or you need power, or you need... No, First, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. Ephesians chapter 4, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The moment you were put in Christ and Christ was put in you, you got all of God you're ever going to need. Now it's a matter of learning to allow Him to take control of us on a daily basis. And here He says, the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God's deity lives in Christ, and you have received Fullness, because Jesus is in you. Now, look at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. But when the Bible says that he's forgiven us all our trespasses, is he talking about the ones that you did before you were saved and now you're still accountable for the ones after you were saved? Or is he talking about all of them? You know how we know it's all of them? When Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins were future? When Jesus paid for your sins, how many of them were future? All of them. Exactly. He paid for your sins when they were all future. And so that means even the ones you're going to commit tomorrow have already been covered by the blood of Jesus. Keep reading, though. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you 
in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a what? Or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Now, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Folks, there are branches of Christianity and some that aren't even Christians who claim to be Christians who have kind of crept into the church over the years, and they'll say, yeah, you're saved through faith in Jesus, but if you're going to be a real good Christian, you have to, there's a group of Christians that try to make us go back and follow the law of Moses and keep the law, dietary laws and all. You've run into those people. That's not what the Bible teaches. It appears to be righteous, but it has no ability to make you righteous. On top of that, um, there are those who have supposedly had visions of angels who gave them more insight, and there's branches that call themselves Christianity, like Seventh-day Adventists and others, who would say, real good Christians keep the Sabbath, and it's on that certain day, which even though the Bible says, don't let anybody judge you whether or not you keep a Sabbath, and they'll also say, you're not allowed to have meat, you're not allowed to have caffeine, and there's a tendency to try to bring us back under a set of rules in order to get better as a Christian, it starts by faith and it will continue and end only by faith. Go to Galatians chapter 3. You're in, you're in Colossians. Back up a couple of books real quick to Galatians 3. Listen to what Paul says in verses 1 through 9. Galatians 3 verses 1 through 9. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law, the things you did, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let me ask you this question. And I want honesty here. Do you still struggle a little bit with that too? Do you still finding yourself, find yourself, even though you know you've been saved by Jesus and it's been his gift and it's not anything you did, feeling like the, you still have to do some things in order to be pleasing to him? Anybody else have that same struggle that I do? We all still do. And here's the question I'm going to deal with in the time we have left today. Why then? Why do we still struggle with it? We know this is true, but why do we still struggle with it? And I'm going to help you out, hopefully, and encourage you. The first reason is this. Our flesh wants credit. Even though you were saved and you've been born again, it did not affect your flesh. You're still in this old body and your flesh wants credit. You're in Galatians. Jump over to chapter six. Look at verses 12 through 16. Galatians chapter six, verses 12 through 16. Paul says, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but the desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Do you remember how Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 said, Many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And I'll say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Do you know why he's going to say to those people, Depart from me, I never knew you? Because their faith was in what they did. Lord, I went to church. Lord, I preached. Lord, I taught Sunday school. Lord, I worked hard for you. And he's going to say, your faith was in what you did, not in me. Folks, if your salvation's real, it has to not only begin in faith, it must finish in faith. We all struggle with wanting to fall back into the rules and the law and the regulations, and that's why we're so susceptible to all this false teaching that's out there. But first and foremost, keep in mind, the problem is your flesh wants credit. Husbands, you want, you want evidence of this? Have you ever done something that you know your wife would like, but she didn't ask you and you just did it? And then you kind of count how long till she notices. And then when she does notice, you think, I got some points. My wife and I have had this running dialogue for years. And I'll empty the trash. It's one of those things that she hates doing. And it's not a big deal for me. But when I think of it, I'm like, oh, the trash needs to be emptied. And instead of her saying, hey, Jim, would you empty the trash, which she does, a lot of times I'll just grab it, take it out, put it in a new bag, and then leave the garbage can, the drawer that it's in, open so she can see new can. And then I'll wait. And then she'll say, you emptied the trash. And I go, yeah, I got some points, didn't I? And she always says the same thing. She says, the fact that you did it for the points takes all your points away. But our flesh wants credit. But there's another problem that we have that you really need to understand even more than that. Your flesh is at war right now against the spirit of God within you. Go to Galatians chapter 5. You're in Galatians 6. Back up to Galatians 5. Look at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We, when we want to walk in the spirit or experience the power of God in our life, we'll usually focus on not doing the things we're not supposed to do, correct? So we're actually trying to fight our flesh when who's the only person that can defeat our flesh? Only Jesus. So in the same way in which you receive Jesus as Lord, Colossians 2.6, we need to learn how to walk in him. Lord, I can't save myself. I'm in trouble. I need you. You're the only one that has done it. And you said you'd give it to me if I asked you and I ask you right now to save me. And he did. Now on a daily basis, as we have to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit, you cannot say, I'm going to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. You have to say, Lord, I can't say no to my flesh and yes to you. I want to, 
I got a problem. This body of death. I need you. Would you help me? Would you give me victory? Would you give me your power? I believe you. And you watch in those instances when the flesh wants to take control, if you say, Lord, you do it. He does. Oh, by the way, you're not the only one that understands this struggle. You know who else had this same struggle? His name is Paul. He wrote the book of Romans. Go to Romans 7. Like I've said, the whole book of Romans can teach the whole book of Romans. Romans 7, look at verses 14 through 25. Theologians and Bible scholars have wrestled for years. In this section, is Paul talking about his experience before he was saved or after he was saved? And I've gone back and forth over the years, but I've literally come down 100% solid now. And I believe the Lord's convinced me from the text and from the study of this, I think Paul is talking about his experience after salvation. There's a lot of cues in here that this is what he's talking about. Look at what he says in Romans 7, starting in verse 14. He said, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree, agree with the law that it's good. So now, look closely. This is a, a Greek word that actually means a transition has heard, a, a permanent transition has occurred. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Anybody experience that besides me? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. By the way, that's why a group called Gnostics and a teaching of Gnosticism started to creep into the church because of this true teaching that... When you sin, it's not the new you that's sinning. It's your old nature. So these preachers came in and said, well, Christians can do whatever they want in their body because our spirits are alive and made new. And whatever we do in the flesh doesn't really matter. And they taught a weird form of Christianity, which Paul blows up in our study of Romans, which he does. But look at what he says next. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, my body parts, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. My body part, parts, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul said, I have this same struggle. And that's why, by the way, you need to understand you're not going to have victory because Jim taught it to you tonight in Bible study and now it's all good. Because your flesh is going to get up with you again tomorrow and the day after and the day after. And that's why Paul said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're to lay our bodies on the altar as a living sacrifice. Take, lay our flesh on the altar, renew our minds and let the spirit of God show us what he wants us, wants us to do and how to walk with him. You're going to have to practice walking by faith, living by faith, keeping in step with the Spirit. By the way, as you do, there's going to be things that the Spirit of God may say to you, in this instance, it's okay. But in other instances, it's not. 
And you're going to have to learn to let the Spirit lead you and guide you in that way. Years ago, I was preaching at this church for a week and doing a week of teaching on the grace of God. And the pastor came to me in the middle of the week and he said, I know what you're teaching them is true, but you can't tell them. And I'll go, why? He said, because they'll abuse it and they'll run amok. And I looked at this pastor and I said, you think God's impotent. He said, what do you mean? I said, you don't think that the God who's able to control you is able to control them. And so you think you got to control them with rules and regulations and you need to do this and you need to do that. No, listen, folks, you're going to start to find joy and peace if you stop trying to get better as a Christian by following the rules. And you, you actually believe that the one who began the work will finish it. And you actually walk with him on a daily basis, spend time in the word, spend time in prayer and say, Lord, you said you, your desire is to conform me into the image of Christ. You predestined to conform me into the image of Christ. I want that. And just like I asked you to save me, I ask you to do this sanctification process. There's something you're working on me right now about I yield myself to you in this area. We all grew up singing, I surrender all. And God says, I don't want you to surrender all. I just want you to give me what I'm working on right now. You see what I'm saying? And you're going to find little victories that he gets the credit. You're going to see some failures that he's going to use to teach you. But you're also going to start to see a change in you as you learn to walk by faith. You're saved by faith. You're sanctified by faith. And one day, we're going to see him face to face by faith. I shared this last night, and I'll share this with you as we're about to wrap up with like one more scripture real quick. But this, as I travel around and speak to Christians all around the country, I'll run into a lot of older Christians. And I'll say to them lovingly, but honestly, hey, we're getting closer to death, aren't we? Would you not agree we're getting closer to death? You're talking about your knee and your hips and all this stuff. Are you looking forward to that day? I know I could ask you because I know you'd say yes. But listen, you know how many people have said to me, senior adults who've been in church their whole life? I hope so. I hope so. And there's a fear at their death. Why? And this is what they say. I say, what do you mean you hope so? Well, I believe in Jesus, but I've tried to do a good job. And they're still thinking it's somehow tied to how good they've been. He's the one who does it. He's the one who does it. And I want you to be encouraged. It's a power of God for salvation. And if he saves you, he did it, not you. And this salvation you have, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, fade, or spoil, kept in heaven for you. Or by faith or shielded by God's power. Folks, we need endurance. But if you'll walk out of here and say, I'm going to do better, you've already failed. Jesus, you started it. You said you'd do it, and I believe you will. Teach me how to walk with you. Teach me how to trust you. And as Paul said in Galatians 2.20 and then 21, he said, I no longer live, right? I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The life I live, I live by faith and the Son of God who died for me. We're going to learn a lot more as Paul now, we come back in two weeks, we're going to come back in two weeks, Paul's going to lay the foundation of the gospel, how God's revealed himself to everyone, yet he's then going to move in how the law's purpose is to show us we're broken and we are sinners and we need a Savior, and then he's going to start walking into in the next chapters how to live it out. And even though I've been a Christian for almost 50 years now, 
I can't wait to have him show me some more, and I hope you can too. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming. <laughs>